Working Class Audio is brought to you by Universal Audio, Audio Technica, Loudon Audio, Focal Monitors, and Gearsluts.com. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 123. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thank you, Chuck, and welcome back, everybody, to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is Session 123 you're listening to. My guest today is Mr. John O'Brien, who is a uh, native of Orange County, California, and he's also the owner and producer over at the Music Box Studios, which is located in downtown Fullerton. That's somewhat north of Anaheim, California, if you're trying to get your bearings. And he is on his, what is this, his third studio in the past five years, expecting twins, studio owner, has worked with bands such as Young the Giant, Listener, Travelers, Yellow Red Sparks, and Roa Summit. Yeah, you may know some of those bands, or maybe you don't know any of those bands. Point is, he's a working class guy. He's got a studio, he's got his crew of people around him, and, uh his community, and that's why he's on here. So there it is, John O'Brien coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. So we had a little hiccup there on the last episode, episode number 122, which just goes to show you, if you wait till the last minute to do something and you rush it out, you're going to screw it up. So what did I do? I screwed it up. I uh, I left a big gap in the in the front of the show, and uh, a couple of you alerted me to it, so I appreciate that. I had to quickly edit it and reload it, so a few of you heard the um, the broken one. Most of you heard the correct one. So um, as the old saying goes, um, proper planning prevents poor performance. So uh, yeah, sorry about that. And a few of you caught like off the mic conversation with Matt Wright. Uh, talking about some future plans. See, fortunately, I didn't say anything embarrassing, which was good. I just, I'm embarrassed that I had the show up in the wrong way. You know, after this many shows, you'd think I'd have it down. Um, what else I want to tell you about? Oh, I want to share something. You know, the last, uh, speaking of the last episode, uh, Kurt Andrus, the business manager for uh, Mitch Dane, or uh, one, another former guest, that was the last show. If you haven't heard it, you should go check it out. Uh, Kurt said something that really struck a chord with me. He was talking about, he was making an analogy to uh, Southwest Airlines and he talked about, you know, or any airline for that matter. So if you use Kurt's analogy and see your recording studio or your, your home studio, your whatever, your recording rig as your, as your plane, you know, you got to keep it up in the air to be making money. So, and that goes for you know, all the things in your arsenal and case in point, DAP machine, which I've got a Panasonic SV3700. I bought it, what, 19, I want to say I bought it in 94. Maybe I actually bought it in 98. No, I'm going to say I bought it in 94. I've had it the whole time. I'm the only owner. It's worked great the entire time. And uh, obviously there are many years, many years, it saw no use. It just sat on a shelf, off. But, you know, I've made a couple DAT transfers for people over the years. And uh, recently, I talked about setting up a whole rig. can't remember which show that was. I talked about setting up an old cassette machine, a Studer cassette cassette recorder to transfer cassettes, a DAT machine, and uh, and a mini disc, because I have some mini discs. 
And lo and behold, former WCA guest Gabe Shepard sent me a message the uh, yesterday, actually, said, help, need DAT transferred. You know, it was just a couple DAT tapes from a producer friend of ours, and it needed to get transferred because it was going to get re-released. And these DATs contained the only non-mastered versions of the mixes that they wanted to use. So... Yeah, I banged it out really quick, and it, you know, it's just, I only charged them 100 bucks for these two dats, which had like 15, 16 tunes apiece. Brought them in, labeled them, uploaded them to Dropbox, took, uh, made PDF versions of the covers for them to reference, and just labeled everything and made it super easy. And yeah, it was only 100 bucks, but, you know, it's a dat machine, and how much can you buy a dat machine for on online these days, a hundred bucks, 150 bucks at most. I wouldn't recommend paying any more than a hundred. So, you know, some of you may have some of this old gear laying around and I'm the first to tell you, get rid of gear if it's not serving any purpose. But in this case, you know, uh, the money that you could make from a DAP machine, from selling an old DAP machine, you probably make more money in a year from that DAP machine than you would selling it. Same goes for cassettes. Cause you know, it may not be a music thing. I've restored uh, cassettes for, or digitized cassettes for people of dead relatives who have extraordinary tales to tell. You know, hold on to the, some of that stuff. Now, if you have like an old Elisa's Quadroverb sitting around, let's be real. Unless that's like your go-to reverb, I'd suggest moving moving that out of the house or moving that out of your studio uh, and getting it out of your rack. But, you know, cassettes, dats, mini discs. Uh, anything like that that uh, ha is an obsolete format that somebody could call up and ask for a transfer for, you know, do it. Make some money from that old gear sitting around. And uh, on continuing on that topic, uh, recently I, I needed to pick up a couple extra hard drives. And I'm in this mode right now where I'm using raw SATA drives and these, um, uh, what's the company called? Inatech. They make, you know, it's just any old company that makes these uh, USB 3.0 two dock or two bay docks, SATA docks, where you can put uh, these SATA drives in. And I find that, that that just works best for me right now. So needing a couple extra drives, I went and checked out some choices and ultimately settled on a couple two terabyte uh, Seagate Barracudas 7200 RPM drives. And I got to tell you, I got it for 66 bucks a piece. I could not believe that. And if I look back to uh, one of my early, early Pro Tools systems, one of my first Pro Tools systems, I remember just sweating bullets over the $700 I was going to spend and ended up spending on a nine gigabyte Seagate Barracuda in a case. Uh, I can't remember who made it. Maybe it was one of the popular, maybe it was a glyph drive. I don't remember. I just remember the the dollar amount and the gigabyte amount. So um, yeah, we're at a remarkable time with drive space being cheap. Yeah, anyways. So I went ahead and bought some drives and, you know, now I'm back in business and back in space, of uh, back, back with more hard drive space and organizing and uh, dealing with the deluge of all of the the stuff piling up on my, uh, on my desktop. So, so that's it. Uh, ramble, 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 talk, talk, talk. Let's get to the interview. What's, what do you say we do that? 
Uh, let's do it. John O'Brien here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. So you are the owner of the Music Box Studio, which is located in Fullerton, California. And for the listener, Fullerton is slightly north of Anaheim, if I'm correct. It's a neighboring city to Anaheim, uh, just a little inland. And how long have you had that studio? I've only been at this location. Actually, it was a, a year anniversary a couple of days ago. So mm. this is my third location in the last five years or so. Wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so a couple things about it, and this is all based on what I see on the website. You're the owner. Beautiful looking place, by the way. The website looks great. Thank uh, you. The, Thank the you pictures are great. And then you have a group of other producer engineers who work out of there as well. Yes. Can you talk about that business structure with you and the rest of the guys? The idea definitely stemmed off of John Vanderslice's tiny telephone model. Oh, yeah. Um, and after the podcast where you interviewed him, I actually reached out to him. It was right around the time that I was moving into the studio. And uh, I just picked his brain a little bit and told him, hey, you know, I really like what you're doing. I like how that like these other engineers and producers are getting a space to kind of call home and work out of. Um, and you are facilitating providing them with some work. I think that's like kind of the special thing about it. He was super helpful, super, what's the word I'm thinking of? Just Crazy? Uh, yeah, super helpful, <laughs> super crazy. But he just basically told me like, dude, do it. Like he's like, I don't know why more studios aren't doing this sort of formula because it, it's worked for him, you know? So to answer your question, I am the studio owner and I am working here probably 80, 90% of the time on my projects with uh, local bands primarily. And the idea was to find a way to have a studio where I could be making some money. I could also be providing some work for some other producers. It stemmed from the idea of I was getting contacted by some artists and I'd listen to their demo. It's the first thing I'd always ask for. And what I was finding is sometimes their their taste or their genre wasn't really lining up with mine. And it was really important for me mm -hmm. to to be able to provide that as the producer, to be able to talk to them about the songs and be excited about their project. Uh, yeah. for, for example, there was a, uh, a client that reached out to me recently and they sent me a demo. And the, the girl, the singer, had a, had a great voice, but it was definitely more in the uh, maybe like the Paramore Evanescence world, you know, mm -hmm. something like that. I do a lot of um, indie rock, some folk Americana stuff, and I could see the potential in the project, but it wasn't really down my wheelhouse. I knew that I wasn't going to, at the end of the day, I wasn't going to make it punch and hit the way they wanted it to. And I might even end up changing this singer's style to fit my taste when that's not really the appropriate thing to do. So what I did was I called up my buddy Josh, uh, he's the head engineer at Hybrid Studios across town. We've become really good friends. I said, hey, do you like this demo? And he's, he's like, absolutely, I do. So I sent the band back an email and I said, hey, this is my buddy Josh. I've already showed him your demo. He really loves the song. He'd love to talk to you more about working on a project together at the Music Box. You know, the idea was to really be the liaison to hook up a band with a producer that was going to see eye to eye with them to begin with. I think that's really wise. Some people take on projects and I've, I'm not going to say I've never done this. Of course I've done this where you take it because you're like, Hey, I need to pay the rent this month. And exactly. there's been times I'm not the right guy for it. 
not only do you not see eye to eye, but you become unhelpful because you can't make quality recommendations based on the music. Exactly. And and it's really hard. I mean, it's hard to make a record even when you love the music. It's hard to stay focused day after day and really provide the band with your A game, you know? So I feel like a lot of bands, if, they have, if they've had poor experiences in a recording studio in the past, it wasn't necessarily because that recording studio wasn't putting out quality work, but maybe it just wasn't a good pairing that time around. And I know what it's like to be on the other end, to, to, be, to be a producer working on a project where you feel kind of stuck or you're not connecting to the artist. And in a lot of ways, and when the clock's ticking, I start to feel guilty like, oh, I'm, I'm charging 50 bucks an hour right now, and I'm not really providing this band with what they need. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's only four producers here at the studio, but we all kind of have our, our strengths. It all falls under like the rock umbrella at the end of the day. But being able to set them up with, with a client that they're going to see eye to eye with, they're going to have fun with, the studio makes some money, the producer makes some money. The band walks away with a great product and with a good relationship with the producer. So that was the goal. One thing that I didn't really expect to come from it was how appreciative the bands were for, to me, for hooking them up with the producer. You know, I'd go out to see the band's show after they had recorded with my buddy Josh and they came up to me and they were so thankful that I had uh, passed the project on to Josh because Josh even went on to, he was filling in on bass for them at that show. So it's kind of that that sort of relationship that I hope that the studio kind of can those sorts of relationships I hope that is what the studio can kind of build over the long long term. That's a winning combination there. I mean, not only do you uh, you you gain everybody's respect and by, you know, not, number 1, handing the project off to Josh in this case. Number 2, the band feels like, "Oh, okay, this guy's actually not just turning us down. He's actually giving us a referral of somebody he thinks is right for us. And as it turns out, that person is right for us. You you create trust and a foundation within that community as a result. Yeah, and that's really where I started to see something special in it. That was the unexpected part of the whole plan and the model is every studio would, would love to be like a, a center for the music community and be a place that like provides a comfortable environment to have a music community. But I really feel like this model kind of actually does help like the the artist and it helps the producer. We're all charging about the same amount. It's between 200 a day for the producer or 250 a day. So it's not like this huge gap where the band's just going for the more affordable option. It's kind of like they listen to the producer's work and kind of decide from there which one works for them. I like that. I like yeah. that. As far as a scene is concerned in Fullerton, you know, the thing with Southern California is is that all the cities kind of cross over into one another. Mm-hmm. It's not like you're in one city and then you've got to drive 100 miles to get to the next city. There's little cities in between and little scenes brewing here and there. How would you describe the scene where the music box is located? Well, I am kind of new to Fullerton. I, I mean, I grew up in Orange County. My last studio was in Westminster, which is a little closer to to the ocean. Like, it's one city inland from Huntington Beach. And then before that, I was in Tustin. So still a lot of my clients are coming from kind of that area, from Costa Mesa, Newport, Irvine, Tustin area. But the Fullerton scene is really great because I'm new to it, but I'm discovering all these new songwriters and, and bands because 
I'm in a in the basement of a building that's downtown where right now I could walk upstairs and go to an awesome brunch spot in the same building and get a coffee and then walk across the street and there's bars, there's coffee shops that have open mic nights, there's venues. So it's really an amazing spot for a recording studio. I've been going out to some of the open mic nights when some of my clients are playing there. I'm just making friends with some of like the the people that even are booking at some of these venues downtown. So hmm. the location you've mentioned raises the question for me, you know, sonically, is there a problem? Do you have to compete at all? No, not at all. This this space is is amazing. It's uh it's kind of tucked away in the corner of the building and I'm the only one in the basement. Directly above me are just two storage units, one for a restaurant and one for a bar next door. So there's no noise issues like at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you if you drill through the roof, will the beer just fall down? <laughs> That's the plan someday. Okay. Just hook up a keg. Yeah. You mentioned that this is your third spot. Yeah. I'd like to know what you've learned from your previous two spots and how you're doing things better or different in this new spot. I started out recording... After college, I moved home and started recording out of my parents' house, uh, mm-hmm. just my bedroom at my parents' house. And I think that was really a great, great start as far as being able to record bands and take my time on some records. And any money I made, I could just put right towards gear because I didn't have any overhead. So I started doing that, making some cool records with bands that I wanted to record because I didn't necessarily have to pay the bills. So that kind of caught on naturally. And then it got to a point where I had a lot of clients and my mom would only take the kids to Disneyland during the day so many times a week, you know, because I was taking over the living room to track drums. So uh, around that time, I set up a Kickstarter and I raised uh, $8,500 to do a build out. I found a warehouse you know, area and leased a warehouse space. I'm amazed that that property manager leased it to me because I really didn't have much of a plan. But I came in there and my my wife now, her her dad is a contractor for, st- uh, for framing and drywall. So we just kind of went for it and like tried to build a studio. You know, it, we didn't hire an acoustician or anything like that. I blew through that budget, through the Kickstarter budget, like immediately. Um, oh, yeah. And I was there for two years, and I made a lot of really fun records that I, I think of very fondly still. You know, like it was a big, uh, the room was like maybe 25 by 25 and had tall ceilings and just had a great sound to it. The issue with being in an industrial park is that you want to make a lot of noise, but also the people around you make a lot of noise. Mm-hmm. Um So I was finding that I picked a quiet neighbor, but that also wasn't necessarily a good thing because I basically couldn't start tracking drums till like after 5 p.m. on the weekdays and on the weekend, you know. So that was a big problem. My wife was running a daycare at our house at the time with four infants a day. So she was getting up at about 6 a.m. The last baby would get picked up around 6 p.m. And, you know, I was getting to the studio at 5. So, yeah, we weren't seeing each other very much, and that just wasn't working for me. So that was my first studio. Great sounding, uh, good vibes, just didn't make a lot of business sense. It was in an expensive area as well. My second studio was in a house in Westminster, in Little Saigon, Westminster. And it was cool. It had it had been converted into a studio about 10 years prior. And uh, 
it was pretty affordable. It was a thousand bucks a month, was like a thousand square foot house, basically. There was two tracking rooms, a decent sized control room, and kind of like a living room lounge area. So that was cool. I could make noise there whenever I wanted, but it wasn't the safest feeling area. And as stuff started popping up, I would find, you know, I found a, a crack pipe in the alleyway and then found a, a used condom. And pretty quickly, I was like, all right, I don't really feel comfortable bringing my clients here. Um, like, especially at night, like I didn't feel comfortable being there at night. It just, it just wasn't feeling right to me. You know the rent's good when you when you're finding used condoms, needles, and crack pipes around yeah, your studio. Yeah, for, for real. And, and and then we had I had a neighbor that I shared a yard with, and apparently he was running a quote unquote law office, but it most definitely wasn't. And uh, one night the SWAT team actually rolled through <laughs> and raided his business, and then. I was at home and I, my I got a call from my alarm company saying that all my alarms had been set off, all like uh, the triggers. simultaneously. Yeah, I was like, okay, should I? Is this something I should like come out to? And then they they called me back and they said, okay, the sheriff's office has served a warrant at your neighbor's house. They set off flashbangs, so basically little like non lethal stun grenade things. Yeah, and that's what set off the alarm. So I was like, okay, I guess. If the police are there, there's no need for me to go check out the studio. Next morning, I show up, and no, they they had raided my studio as well. Um, oh, the door was busted in, dirt all over the floor, mics on the floor. You know, I want to feel safe while I'm making a record and having fun, and feel like I'm providing a safe place for my clients. So, well, um, so let me pause pause you there for a second. And ask so, did the the sheriff's department was there any liability that they they had there you know i filed a claim pretty shortly after and they basically denied liability i had photos the door had to be replaced and it wasn't just like a regular door you know like it had some acoustic treatment on it and like decorative acoustic treatment on top of that so i had to hire someone who who knew how to make it look good and fit in with the rest of the treatment in the studio they basically said if you if you if you want to get paid back for the door, the owner needs to file the claim, the owner of the house who Oh, okay. Who okay. lived out of state. And that was a lesson learned because that studio is very much like a handshake agreement. There was no lease going on. So there really wasn't much of a way to uh they had gotten like passed down to me from a friend who was there for eight years. So he knew the landlord. And yeah, just the lesson learned. You know, I, I definitely would never want to have a studio again without a solid lease and a professional property manager because I think had that been the case, I would have been able to successfully file the claim. And luckily nothing got too damaged, but you know, who's to say that my AEA ribbon mic that got knocked over by the SWAT team ever sounded the same again. You know? Well, you know, <laughs> I I think I'd be less worried about that personally. I'd be more worried about the door being open all night. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, after the after the SWAT team left, you could have had loads of people come in and loot your place. Yeah. And I didn't have cameras at the time. Yeah. It, it was just a bad situation. A couple, like a day later, the wind blew the door a little bit and then the alarm company called me and was like, hey, do you want us to send out police? And I was like, yes, like, let's do it, you know, because the SWAT team just rolled through two nights ago or whatever. And the uh, next thing I knew, I was getting hit with like a false alarm charge from the city. And 
you know, it was just like such a, a shitstorm of, of bad events happening. And I was finally really, I was really ready to get out of there. I was on Craigslist looking for an API uh, 3124. And on the background of the photo of the API, I noticed it was a recording studio. I noticed that they were selling some other pieces. And I kind of recognized the studio. It was called S1. I called the number and uh, I said, hey, I'm interested in the API. But also, I noticed that you're selling some other stuff. Are you guys moving? You know, are you guys moving out? And he's like, yeah, we're moving to Nashville. Uh, I'll be out by the end of the month. So I asked for the property manager's number, and I got it. And I was in here a week later. It was never even advertised. It was just complete, you know, complete fate, luck, uh, whatever mm. you want to call it. it. It was amazing, though. At the time, I, my wife and I were also getting sued by our landlord at our house because (laughs) because he wanted to sell the house but we had a lease and I was moving studios and I wasn't financially ready to move houses as well so we were kind of standing our ground and he tried to evict us and all that stuff so so yeah that brings me to this studio which was just kind of like the turning point for all that that shit storm kind of just coming together again now I live uh, five minutes walk across the street or one minute drive. I have a safe studio to bring my clients to. And uh, yeah, it's been great. I love oh, this place. That's great. And yeah. uh, obviously you got out of that situation with the uh, litigious landlord. Yes, that was a long battle and got out of it pretty cleanly. The real estate agent that was selling the house ended up getting fired and then our next door neighbor was a real estate agent and she sold the house in 48 hours and the new owners paid all our legal fees that we had been paying to fight the old landlord and they let us stay there till the end of our lease well that's that's pretty cool yeah it it was it was crazy it was just a whole bunch of bad stuff followed by nothing but good stuff and now uh my wife and I are actually expecting twins in about two months. Oh my God, your life's about <laughs> to change. Yes, yeah. Wow, what a journey. Uh, yeah, I mean, I hope I didn't stray too far from from your question with the different studios. But Oh no, we always talk about SWAT teams. No, I'm, <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> well, that's an interesting thing. We don't really discuss security issues really on the show. It doesn't really come up all that often, but now that you mention it, I mean, when choosing a studio space, it's tricky because the lure of cheap rent can be unfortunately offset by uh, crime-ridden areas, industrial areas. The the great thing about industrial areas is they're cheap, they're flexible. Uh, The challenge, of course, is, is when it comes to simple things like I think it's nice when you're in a studio situation and you can leave the studio to go get a cup of coffee or go out to lunch. Yeah, that's been that's been amazing for for the bands and for just morale in general. You know, being able to walk outside and like it feels like downtown Fullerton is an extension of the studio in a lot of ways. Like just being here adds so much value and vibe to to the day. You rent and yes. you didn't you didn't have to do a build out though, did you? No, I didn't. I haven't had to do a build out at my last two studios, which has been amazing. <laughs> Cause the first one was just a crazy experience and, and you can't do a build out on a small budget. You know, you're just gonna run into so many so many uh cut corners and 
bleed through the wall and windows that aren't properly sealed and all that stuff. So being in this space, I, I moved in and I just had to rewire it, really. Um, moved all my gear in. Josh from Hybrid helped me rewire it and we got we got it going. I was recording, you know, maybe two weeks later. Uh, I think I've met Josh. Yeah, I think uh, he mentioned that. You met Josh and Mike at... Um, at NAM. Yeah, at NAM, yes. Yeah, they 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 came and, and said hello and invited me to a party. So Yeah, yeah. yeah it's so, the hybrid happy hour that happens every year. Yeah. Um, so Mike is the other guy you met. He also he was in here working yesterday. He owns a studio called Maps across town. And we work together a lot. I hire him to play drums. I hooked him up with uh, kind of like an instrumental jazz project recently that he's been working out of the studio on. Can so, you t talk a little bit about studios like you've just mentioned, Maps, Hybrid, yeah. Music Box, all interacting and working with each other as opposed to directly competing with each other? I think it's great, man. You know, we're all doing the same thing and there's room for it. You know, there's room to be friendly and helpful and supportive of each other. We've helped each other through some tough times like one one of us will just you know say if if we're kind of struggling financially if the studio isn't be doing great that month and and maybe mike will send me some vocals to tune you know and it'll mm -hmm. just help me that much more through that week I, i've listened to the podcast we all have a lot and uh you know you you've spoken about uh just like diversifying and I, mike does a lot of live sound and that's kind of like his way to bring in some extra cash on the side uh, Josh, his primary gig is head, the head engineer at Hybrid, but he'll come here and, and produce sometimes and, you know, make a couple hundred bucks a day that way. This studio in the model, it really is kind of, we talked about that when we were setting it up. I told them, I was like, this, this one studio isn't going to support four of us. But if I can be, if I can give you that one project every three months that kind of helps, you know, from your normal gig, then that's the goal. Like if, if we can do that together and just be open about it when we need some extra cash or need a gig, it's helped us out a lot, like working together with that. John O'Brien here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. We're going to take a sponsor break with Audio-Technica for a sec. And I, uh, I mentioned this before to you, the headphone accessories available for sale on the Audio-Technica website you can add them right to your cart. If you're a user of the M-Series headphones, they do sell replacement cables. They do sell replacement pads. If you're a studio and your headphones are seeing a lot of use, you can get yourself some new pads, of course. You can get them in black and white. Same with the cables. They also have headphone hangers, which I've also mentioned before, which I just, I think are, I know it's such a simple thing, but I just really love utilitarian things like that. Headphone hangers. That's fantastic. Anyhow, uh, you can find all that on the Audio-Technica website. That's at audio-technica.com. Well, let's get back into it here with Mr. John O'Brien here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. So you've got twins that you and your wife are expecting. You've heard the show several times. The work-life balance thing is probably something you've thought about. So what's your, much, yes. what's, your, what's your plan? Well, you know what? I have to thank you. I have to thank you and, and all the people that were on the podcast that talked about that. I mean, I feel like in the past you've kind of uh, 
when you go into that part of the podcast, you give a little bit of a disclaimer to those who don't have kids. And <laughs> I don't think you need to, because I listen to that just as much as the other parts of the podcast. It goes back to when I was running that studio and my wife had the daycare. We knew that when we had kids, that that schedule wasn't going to work. So that was a big part of me wanting to find a space where I could start adjusting my schedule and work during the days. So now for two years, three years maybe, probably two years, I, I work 10 to 7. And um, it's been awesome. I just tell bands, hey, I usually work 10 to 7. I'll work any day of the week, you know. I'll work weekends. And they go for it. I, I've only had a couple night sessions in the last couple of years. And I think listening to to some of the people that you've interviewed and hearing their the ways that they have made the family work life, you know, work, that's kind of set me up in the last couple of years um, to a point where we're about to have twins and I feel like I don't need to change much because I've been, I've been working towards this goal for, for the past couple of years. Yeah, even down to, you know, we live across the street from the studio. My wife works from home. She works for her dad doing all the office work for his contracting company for the the drywall and steel stud framing. So, so yeah, we're kind of, you know, knock on wood, we're, I, I think we're okay. We're, I think we're in a good situation too. As long as the studio keeps going well, mm -hmm. um, I'm just going to roll with it. If you have your shit together at home, it helps the studio, helps the recording business, and then it helps the artist that you work with. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think you know, the, the 10 to 7 thing, it's not just because it's like a, a comfortable time frame to work in. Like, I, I really feel like coming home and having dinner with my wife every night, like, keeps me grounded and keeps me, it, that, it's that time that refreshes me for the next morning, you know? And also when I'm, when I'm telling the band, when I'm wrapping up the day, it's not, hey guys, it's seven o'clock, your time's up. It's, hey guys, Megan's got dinner ready at home, you know? And they're like, yeah, that's not, that sounds great. I'm gonna, we're gonna go have dinner too. And, and I think, you know, it's been it's been fun kind of like bringing the artists, like letting them into my personal life a little bit in that sense. And the, it just becomes a really like understanding uh, relationship where they're very respectful of that time and understand why I do that. Those things, you know, of course, of course, I'm going to I'm going to work. I'll work through the night if, if the project came up and, and I, I really uh thought it was a special project and they needed me you know i'm not i'm not above that by any means but for the day-to-day -day grind th this has been working out for me and i think it'll lend itself well to the family life in the long term i think in this day and age we can be a little more communicative to the artist and have that relationship of hey okay cool i want to work with you you want to work with me i have a couple time parameters uh that are important to me so let me tell you what that is up front Right. And, uh, you know, but if it were 19, whatever, 70, 60, and you said that to Miles Davis, I think you'd be out of a job pretty quick. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't, I don't want to seem like, a, like I said, I'm not like above working different hours and stuff like that. But when it comes to, uh, yeah, it's just, it's been that, that tr slow transition over the last few years of just preparing for the idea that we, we would like to have kids eventually and and uh, working at these these hours and slowly chipping away, making my overhead lower and lower, 
condensing the amount of gear that I have so it's not overwhelming, you know, or hard to maintain. You're making my transition for me here, which is great, <laughs> which is, so you have, you know, that this is all coming down the road and it's, it's a foregone conclusion. So what are the decisions you make financially as they relate to the, the business to keep the business strong and also just your investments in gear? What's your perspective there? If you've ever watched American Pickers, I'm sure you have. Um, oh, I do quite a bit, actually. <laughs> I, from when I was recording in my parents' bedroom, I, I'm a Craigslist hound. You know, I uh, everything in my studio, I didn't buy it unless it was a killer deal uh, where it was the kind of deal that you need to pick up the phone. You need to catch the ad 30 minutes after it's been posted, pick up the phone and be in the car 10 minutes later, you know, and and... Um, that's how I've really been able to collect this gear and, and not have debt. You know, I, I see this uh, this gear as, as somewhat of a savings account because I haven't really, like this tape echo that's sitting in front of me, I think I paid 250 bucks for it, put another 250 into it, and it's probably worth 900 sitting there, you know, and I try and do those sorts of things with a lot of the gear here, mm -hmm. even if it takes buying something that might not be working right away and just sitting on it for a little bit until I have some cash to pay to get it fixed up, you know? Mm -hmm. But yeah, I don't really buy too many things new. Like I buy, bought my computer new and my Apollo's new, but pretty much everything else is, is really just keeping an eye on Craigslist and uh, trying to buy something only if I know that I could get my money back in the future. As the owner of the music box, are you the one who brings all the gear to the table or do others bring gear to the table? 99% of the gear in here is, is mine. There's a couple mics that Josh leaves here. But yeah, it's pretty much mine. I try and keep it all running. You know, sometimes I'll have to put something in the closet for a little bit. But yeah, it's been good. I, I definitely try and provide a lot of unique toys. I don't think many studios in Orange County have the kind of gear that I have as far as there's a Wurlitzer, there's a Rhodes, there's a Juno, there's an Optagon, there's tape echoes, spring reverbs, you know, mm -hmm. um, stuff that I really love. And it's, it's used on all my productions. But when another producer comes in that's used to working in the box, it's like kid in a candy store for them. One thing I think a lot of studios struggle with when you have a bunch of different people in, in a, whether it's a situation like yours or it's a co-op or whatever, the comfort zone and uh, settings and little idiosyncrasies of, you know, whether it's, do you keep the mouse in the right or the left or, <laughs> right. all, I mean, all that stupid shit. How do you guys manage that kind of stuff without pissing each other off? I think, I, I mean, I ask questions, you know, I ask how they like things set up and try and find a middle ground. The studio is pretty easy to get up and running as far as the patch bay being you know, half normal and stuff like that. So if they just, they all they have to do is make one patch from, from a live room and they could be in the doll recording. But yeah, I, I mean, really, if a producer is renting out the studio and it's not one of the staff producers, because staff producers like, like Mike and, and Josh and Jimmy, I can just hand them a key and they can come in here and fire it up and, you know, close up at the end of the day. But for other producers, I come in for the first couple hours and I just sit on the couch and if they need anything at all as far as how the headphones are routed or the patch bay, I'm there to help them out. And then, you know, around noon, I'll take off and I'll come back at the end of the day and lock up for them. 
Um, I think that's really important, uh, renting out a studio to other producers that might start off as strangers. It's just uh, going the little extra mile and, you know, I'm not charging them for that extra two hours that I'm sitting there, but I want them to feel comfortable in my studio. I know what it's like to roll into a studio and not know how the headphones are working. Uh, it's just, that's such a buzzkill at the beginning of, <laughs> of, of a tracking day, yeah. you know? Patch bay and and headphone system. Those yeah. are the first two things one has to suss out. Exactly. So I want to be there to so they don't have to worry about that. And then as soon as I see that they've got some signal flowing in and you know they're relaxing their shoulders at the, the desk and feeling comfortable, then that's when I'll take off. And I think that long term will really help these people enjoy their experience at my studio. It helps me as well, because I can sit there on the couch and watch them for the first two hours and see how they're conducting themselves and how they're treating the client, how they're treating the gear. Are they are they putting on phantom power before they even start patching? Are they just stuff like that where I can kind of either help them along and explain to them that this is how like, like I have a Sony C37A um, that I got like a steal of a deal on Craigslist and I'm you know, that's like my baby at the studio. So I get scared when I want to make sure people know like the order to turn on the, the power supply, like after it's already been plugged into the microphone and stuff like that. So I'm kind of saving myself also providing the client with some comfort and uh, just seeing like, is this, is this someone I can trust in my studio all day long? Do you have insurance for your gear? I do. I have like traveler's insurance. I called um, Joe Monarello. Mm-hmm. At, at some point and told him a little bit about what I was doing here. And he kind of made it seem like if if I wasn't past the kind of $100,000 mark as far as my gear and stuff like that, that that maybe the traveler's plan that I had was, was plenty, you know. Mm. Can you talk um, about travelers? Because I'm not familiar with that. Honestly, it's something that that I got out of necessity when I signed that first lease for the warehouse studio. They required me to have an insurance policy for liability primarily, but along with that plan, I got, I think, $25,000. It's what I said, the amount of gear I had. So it's something where I've been, I'm going to like call them this week and really like suss it out because I got it out of necessity years ago. And uh, I feel like it's something that kind of has some unanswered questions like I want to know what happens if I'm in the basement I want to know what happens if there's a flood or um, if I get a new piece of gear and and a a client like if the Sony C37 like breaks um, you know is that something that that I can like file a claim for you know or like is that just I, I don't really understand the insurance side of things as much as I should you know which is partially where I wanted someone like Joe Monarello. Partially, I wanted his uh, his experience, you know. So I, I think in the future I'll hit him up again, even if I have to pay a little extra. I think it'll it'll be worth it. I don't think any of us are really experts on insurance, unless you know. I'm sure there's a few of us out there that have been robbed a few times, and they or have been in disaster situations, and they understand what it is. So yeah, that's that's a scary thought. <laughs> and then just kind of slowly wrapping up here, I'm curious what you think is. What do you think's going well, and what do you think is could stand some improvement, whether it's the studio or you or your workflow, whatever? So I think what's what's going well with the studio and, and my production is uh, 
I'm getting a, a consistent flow of local artists, and there are a lot of bands that I really enjoy working with. And this model kind of helps me maintain that and keep the ball rolling. And what I'd like to be able to do is is find a way to reach out to um, out of state artists and provide some sort of destination recording. I don't I don't know if that really works with this space in particular though, because there is no like lounge or like lodging, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, but that's something I'd like to work towards in the future. Yeah. So I, I kind of want to set it up. So where it's, I have all those answers for anyone that might reach out to me from out of state. It's only happened a couple of times, but that would be, that'd be nice because that would just feel good to branch out of the orange County scene a bit. You know, like I, I get some clients from, from LA, rarely from San Diego, but primarily orange County. It comes in waves in orange County where sometimes you know, bands are on on a cycle. Uh, you know, a band lasts maybe a local band lasts maybe four or five years before they either break up or they get real jobs and just the band slows down a lot. So I've seen it where it's kind of been like maybe two or three years ago where it just felt like all the bands were breaking up and there was no new bands. I think right now is kind of like the other end of that wave where like when all those bands were breaking up there was these really young kids that were just starting to play and learn and now I'm finding a lot of 20 21 year old songwriters that are really talented and they're kind of becoming that new wave of the scene what I'm getting at is it would be nice to have some out-of-state work for when that wave crashes again you know and these mm -hmm. bands start to break up I think it's important to be like prepared for that that Orange County isn't always just going to have a ton of bands for me. Tell me about how you approach, whether you have an approach or not, for health. For my personal health? Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't really have an approach. It's something that with the kids coming, I've been thinking about a lot more. I broke my heel uh, maybe f six years ago, rock climbing. And for two years, I had a limp. And now even just sitting on my chair all day, like my, my hip will hurt at the end of the day, stuff like that. Like I really, I was kind of sucking it up. And now with the kids coming, it's like, you know what? I need to invest some money and go to a chiropractor and get this taken care of. And if I need to have surgery on my, my foot, you know, like, and so be it. I need to like look into those sorts of things. But yeah, unfortunately, I don't really have a, a plan with, with my health. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. I guess it's less of a plan as is as an approach, you know, to breaking the cycle of sitting all day. Do you have health insurance for yourself? Um, my wife and I do. We, you know, with everything that went on that year with uh, the uh, uh, landlord and me kind of being in that transition Westminster studio, we weren't making that much money. So we are on like Medi-Cal, uh, but I think starting this this coming, you know, season, we're going to have to switch over and really come up with a good plan and, and get a good healthcare plan that's going to work for our entire family. Do other producers and engineers that you know... Are they in a similar situation or? You know, I don't know. I haven't really asked them those questions. It's, they're good questions, though. It's This is all def like these last two questions you've asked are definitely stuff that I'm kind of like thinking about more with the kids on the way, you know? So I think it's important for all of us to be considering it. I mean, not only how do we take care of our daily health, but I mean, how do we, you know, long term? I'm not trying to be an insurance salesman, but, you know, 
we don't want to be part of the statistics of going to the emergency room, you know, for things that would normally uh, be covered under regular insurance too. Right, right. Yeah, it's definitely something that I need to put some more thought into and I got to do that. I know, I don't have all the answers. So I'm, (laughs) I, I, I just ask the questions. Right. On the topic of mentorship, what do you have to say about that? I think that has just been like one of the most helpful things for me in getting started and just that support of being able to show someone something that I was working on that I felt proud of, but, you know, needed that reassurance that I was doing some good work. My first internship was in Oklahoma. I contacted a studio called Blackwatch in Norman, Oklahoma, and it was run by Chad Copeland and Jared Evans. And they were young. They were probably, I want to say they were 25 or 26 at the time, but had already had the studio for a while. And I was, I had just turned 21 and I just contacted them because I really liked their recordings and told them I wanted an internship or if I I could help out in any way. And they said yes. So I flew out to Oklahoma and I lived in like a little apartment in the studio. They let me live in there. And it was amazing. It was like the the best summer camp that I had never had, you know. (laughs) It was just so awesome to really watch some young down-to-earth guys make some amazing records. Chad just recently produced some of the stuff on the new Third Eye Blind record, and he still makes some of the best-sounding recordings I've heard. So that was really great for me. I spent a, a summer there, maybe two months, and they just welcomed me into the family. You know, I was going out to to dinner with them and their friends and and bars and it was just super fun that was really special for me not having to have an internship in LA necessarily where where I felt like maybe I was going to have to be a runner or cleaning toilets and stuff like that you know instead I I made the decision to go somewhere in the middle of nowhere and just be uh, luckily welcomed in and kind of thrown into it right away and then my other internship that I had was with producer named Raymond Richards. He was Mm -hmm. in LA. He produced the Local Natives record a a few years back that did really well. And he had a home studio in LA where the garage had been converted into the control room and the house was, you know, the tracking room. And yeah, I, I worked with him for about a year and just learned so much on the engineering side. He's a fantastic engineer, fantastic producer, just really great at like making the client feel special and feel upbeat. He moved to Portland recently, and he's got this like amazing looking studio called B-Side. He's been posting some Instagram videos, and even just on those, the recordings sound like so great. He'll, he'll have a shot of a of the, you know, his iPhone in front of the drummer in the room. And then the next shot is him in the control room in front of the speakers. And just the way he's capturing the sound is like so authentic and so accurate. It's it's just really cool watching those little clips. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so those have been, those have just been so helpful for me. I mean, they, they treated me so with so much respect and you know, I never went to recording school or anything like that. So I never really learned that I was like supposed to keep my mouth shut. And <laughs> just like, so they, they were patient with me. And, you know, I picked up on that over time. And, but they just made me feel like I was part of the team. And I really appreciate that long term. So I have, I have an intern assistant now named Carter. He's 19. 
and uh, I love having him around. You know, he's he's great with with the clients, probably way better than I was at that age. I'm really trying to get him set up with some engineering gigs while I'm taking some paternity leave. You know, get mm-hmm. the, keep the studio rolling, give him some of his first gigs, and uh, kind of pass the torch because those those mentorships were extremely helpful for me. So yeah, it's it basically those two guys, Chad Copeland, or those three guys, Chad Copeland, Jared Evans, Raymond Richards, and uh, my mastering guy, Mike Fossenkemper. I've been working with him probably eight years now. And he's the kind of guy that'll pick up the phone anytime I call him and I'll tell him, hey, I've been chasing my tail on these mixes for hours and He'll walk me through it, and I always know I can rely on his ears after working with him for so long. And who would you recommend I talk to next? I think Raymond. I think you'd have a lot of fun talking with him, Uh, especially since he just moved to Portland, and he's kind of like, for the first time, sharing the studio. Uh, It's called B-Side, B-Side Recordings, and... I've been seeing photos of him on Instagram also working out of like people's home studios and, and stuff. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think that would be really interesting. For the audience, if they want to check you out, they can do so at themusicbox.com or, is, or do I have that website right? Yeah, it's themusicboxstudios.com. Musicboxstudios.com. Your contact information is there if they want to reach yeah. out for any reason. And, yeah, of uh, course. Well, cool. Well, I certainly appreciate you uh, taking some time out of your day here to to chat. Yeah, thank you so much. I, I, I'm a big fan of the show, so I'm honored to be on it. Nice uh, talking to you. Oh, well, thank you. Well, thanks again, John. I appreciate it. I'll talk to you later. All right, cool. Thank you. All right, later. Mr. John O'Brien here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Glad to have him on our show. And uh, yeah, if you're ever in uh, Fullerton, California, give him a call. He's over at the Music Box Studios. So that's it, friends. Let's thank everybody involved, starting with Cliff Truesdell, Chuck Smith, and Mr. Cole Williams. And let's thank our sponsors, Lawton Audio, Audio-Technica, Gearslets.com, Universal Audio, and Focal Monitors. And uh, thanks to all of you. Appreciate you listening. As usual, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.